0: Well, if you would please uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter one. Uh, John chapter one. And uh, every year around this time, uh, it's it's common to hear songs about a certain person who is making a list, checking it twice. Someone who perhaps is coming to town on a sleigh pulled by a reindeer. All right, kids who are here, who am I talking about? I didn't quite hear that, but I'm going to assume that meant Santa Claus. And um, we're talking about Santa Claus, uh, not the whole time, just right now. Uh, Now, perhaps you are wondering, perhaps you are wondering, the the million-dollar question is, is Santa Claus real? Getting myself in trouble here. And I want to set the record straight this morning. The answer is, of course, Yes. There was a man named Nicholas of Myra, which is in Asia Minor, and he was a pastor. Nicholas of Myra was a pastor in the 4th century A.D., and he was later named a saint by the Catholic Church, and that's why he is sometimes called Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas, or in Dutch, it's, it's pronounced or it's, it's, it's said... Sinterklaas, hence where we get Santa Claus from. Now, there are various legends uh, about Nicholas that have been passed down through church history uh, and even through culture today, including stories about his uh, extravagant generosity, which is why we actually associate giving gifts with Santa Claus today. He, he was known for his generosity. Uh, but um, I learned my favorite legend about old Saint Nick when I was in seminary from my church history professor. Uh, In the year 325 AD, uh, church leaders from all over the Roman Empire met to discuss a theological issue, the deity of Christ. And this was known as the Council of Nicaea. And around that time, there was a man named Arius, who believed that Jesus was, was very special, but not fully equal to God the Father. Uh, Arius believed Jesus was created, the first of God's creatures and the greatest of all creatures, but a creature nonetheless. And he even came up with a a slick slogan. Arius would would teach people this phrase, there was when he was not. Meaning there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. There was when he was not. And Arius' point was that Jesus was created by God the Father. He was not co-eternal. He was not co-equal with the Father. He was not fully God. Uh, m- maybe some of you uh, are familiar with church history. It, it, the, the Greek word that he would use was that Jesus was homoiousios homoi, meaning similar, of a similar nature to God. He, he said they are homoousios. He didn't know you were going to be learning Greek today. According to church history, Arius was at the Council of Nicaea teaching this heresy, and that immediately put him on Nicholas's naughty list. And as Nicholas was listening, he became more and more agitated that Jesus would be so blasphemed. And so while Arius was still speaking, St. Nick got up, walked straight over to Arius, and slapped him in the face. Now, I I am not uh, promoting that or condoning that as a way to handle heresy, but good old St. Nick, man, you got to appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate his zeal for the truth, his zeal for the gospel. now, whether or not this is one hundred percent accurate or not, this might have some more historicity to it than other legends about him. perhaps uh, we don't know for sure if this happened exactly as that is told, but that is by far my favorite story about Saint Nicholas. <laughs> but all joking aside that that little historical vignette into. Nicholas of Myra, really draws our focus to the real significance of Christmas. The deity and the humanity of Christ. The deity and the humanity of Christ. That the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became a man. And, and by the way, I, I I don't have anything to back this up, but homoousios, of a similar nature, that was Arius' word. Those who understand biblical truth, they would say, no, no, Jesus is Homoousios, of the same, the same nature. And I think that, that might be where Santa Claus got his ho ho homoousios from, but I'm <laughs> not sure. So just next time you hear ho ho ho, just think homoousios. So, all right. Just had to swing that, it went in there. All right, all right. But Christmas is about the deity and the humanity of Christ, that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became a man. And I know many of you are familiar with the Christmas story. Of Jesus being born to a virgin named Mary, Uh, so I want to take a slightly different approach this morning. Instead of walking through as we begin our Christmas season and we're 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 well into December now, uh, as you are preparing uh, your hearts for for Christmas and and thinking upon these things, I want to take a slightly different approach. Rather than walking through the story of Christmas this morning, I want to draw our our thoughts to the theology of Christmas, to the theology and the doctrine of Christmas. I want us to consider the mystery. In the miracle of Christmas. And of course, I'm talking specifically about the miracle of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. Incarnation, the word becoming flesh. Like most biblical truth, the incarnation is simple enough for a small child to understand, but it's also complex enough that no theologian could ever get to the bottom of it. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer, made the point that there are a lot of things in the Christian faith that are hard to believe. It's hard to believe, perhaps for some, in the miracles in the Gospels, uh, to believe in the sufficiency of the Atonement, to believe in the Resurrection. But J.I. Packer went on to write this, In fact, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the Gospel confronts us, does not lie in the Good Friday message of Atonement, nor in the Easter message of Resurrection, but in the Christmas message of Incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. That is a miracle of all miracles. And if that's true, Good Friday and Easter make sense. You see, those three go together. Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. You can't understand one without the other. But of the three, if the incarnation is true, the other two make total sense. The other two make total sense. But if the incarnation is not true, then the other two make no sense. That's the starting point here. And so I wonder if those statements surprise you. Because if we're honest, many of us are not perhaps amazed by the incarnation as much as we should be. And and if that's the case, uh, I would perhaps submit to you that either we don't understand the basics of the incarnation or we haven't thought deeply enough about the basics of the incarnation. And, and again, maybe you're thinking, I know, I know. The Son of God became a man. So Jesus is truly God and truly man. Simple. Truly God, truly man. And you would be absolutely right. But this morning, I want to challenge your mind. I want to push your heart to wonder and worship more deeply as you consider Christ in his incarnation. If you could put it this way, right? Uh, knowing that Jesus is truly God and truly man, that's, that's good. That's wonderful. That is sufficient. That is like swimming in a pool on the shallow end with your floaties on. I want to push you to the deep end. Not to make you drown, but to push you to worship more deeply. And so, to do that, I want to answer three simple questions this morning. Three simple questions. What is the incarnation? Second, what is so mysterious about the incarnation? And then, third, what difference does that make in my life? So, first, what is the incarnation? What is the incarnation? In simplest terms, the incarnation describes how God the Son became a man. How the word became flesh. And again, I want to read for us John 1:14. John chapter 1 verse 14 it says there, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, my, my plan is actually to use this verse as somewhat of a an outline as a as a launching point for the next three weeks leading up to Christmas. And, and this morning, I want to focus on that first part. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. That's, that's really in a nutshell the incarnation. Carn carnation, that, that's the word flesh there, in to become, to, to, to become flesh. Now, in verse 14, who is the word and to to figure that out, you have to go back to verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, uh, we understand that this is speaking of Jesus. Uh, the, the Word existed in the beginning before anything was created, and it says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, He is fully God in His essence and very nature, but He's also distinct from God in some way. This Word is God, but He is distinct from God the Father. And, and this is, of course, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who is eternally, uh, eternally and fully divine and equal to the Father, but also distinct from the Father. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a sense in which He is exactly equal to the, to the Father in His divine essence, but He is also a distinct person from the Father. So he is with him, he, is, he was with God, and he was God. And John 1.14 tells us this divine person, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And again, that's the simplest and most straightforward way to describe the incarnation. The Word became flesh. The second person of the Trinity became flesh. In Jesus, the Son of God, who always existed, became a man. And, and Jesus didn't just come and put on flesh as if you can just put on a jacket that you can take off later. In the incarnation, the Son of God became a man so that he is truly God and truly man in one person for now and for all eternity. And so it's been said this way throughout church history, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He remained the eternal son of God. He remained uh, completely divine, completely omniscient, completely omnipotent. He remaining what he was, he didn't change any aspect of his deity. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not, namely man. Now, in some ways, the, the miracle of the incarnation isn't technically about his birth, but about his conception Remember in Matthew 120, an angel told Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It was a miraculous virgin conception through the Holy Spirit. But as far as we know, it would seem that Mary had a natural pregnancy and a natural delivery. So the virgin birth, uh, yes, was special because it was a virgin conception. And we're not told for sure. Perhaps she even had morning sickness or strange cravings. I don't know. But it was, it would seem that it was a, a normal pregnancy and delivery, but it was A miraculous conception. But this virgin birth wasn't just miraculous biologically. This was miraculous spiritually because in this divine act, the divine nature and the human nature were joined together in one person forever. I want you to think about this. At that singular point in history, the infinite took on the finite. The eternal entered time. The creator entered his creation to dwell among us. So that answers in the briefest way the first question, what is the incarnation? It is the miracle through which the Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, the Word who indeed was God, that Word became flesh. And so Jesus is truly God and truly man. That's why we sing those familiar words even this morning. In that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And so he is God in the flesh. He is God dwelling with us. He is God not just uh, pretending to be a man, but God who really became a man. Okay, so, but what's the big deal? How is that such a mystery? That leads us to the second question. What is so mysterious about the Incarnation? In a sense, it is good enough to know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And if, if you really think about this, though, there are difficulties and mysteries that start popping up. You see, Jesus is not just God in a bod, He's not just walking around in a human body. This isn't just God in a man. This is Jesus, uh, Jesus is God as a man, He is fully God. And as early Christians tried to wrestle with how to faithfully express the deity of Christ and the reality of a triune God, they they used the language of persons and nature. Persons and nature. Again, I know we're talking a lot of theology today, but my, my hope is that this would give you fuel for your heart to worship. Not coal for your stockings, but coal for your heart to worship. So persons and nature. Person is a question of who. Nature is a matter of what. So who am I? That's a question of personhood. I'm Tranway. That's who I am as a person. What am I? I'm a human. I'm a man. That's what I am as to my nature. So who am I? Personhood. What am I? My nature. So I'm I'm one person with one nature, and so are you. We're one person with one nature. But God, on the other hand, is a trinity. God is triune. God is one what, but he is three who's. God is one nature, the divine nature. That's what he is. He is God, but who is God? Well, God exists eternally as three persons. That's who he is. He is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. One what, three who's. What about Jesus? Jesus is one person, that's who, but he is two what's. He has a divine nature and a human nature joined together miraculously and perfectly in one person. One person with two natures. And I promise you, if you follow, there is some payoff here. You can think of someone's nature as a set of attributes. Uh, the, the, The divine nature, you could think of it as the collection of all the divine attributes. That's what divine nature is. So the divine nature is the set of attributes that make God, God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his eternality, his immutability. He does not change his self-existence that he is completely independent, needs nothing, needs no one, needs nothing. He is self-existent. It is in God's nature to be those things. That is who God is. That is what God is, if I can say it that way. That's what God is. That's his nature. It's the set of all those attributes that make him God. On the other hand, human nature is that set of attributes that makes us human. For instance, we have a body and a soul. We are finite in time. We are finite in space. We are finite in knowledge. We are constantly changing. We are dependent creatures. It is in man's nature to be those things. So again, I'm one person with one nature. I'm I'm, I'm a human. I have all those limitations of body and soul, finite in time, finite in space. But Jesus is one person with two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature. That makes Jesus one who possesses all the divine attributes and all of the human attributes at the same time in such a way that it does not conflict with one another. Jesus is omnipresent because of his divine nature. And yet he is finitely somewhere. Even now, like Jesus is somewhere. And you think, well, yeah, he's in my heart. I asked him into my heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. Ephesians talks about it that way. But there's a sense to which Jesus resurrected with a body is somewhere because he's forever the God man now. Jesus is omniscient, knowing all things because of his divine nature, and at the same time, Luke 2.40 says that he grew in wisdom because of his human nature. His human nature doesn't make him less divine. His divine nature doesn't make him less human. He has to be fully God and fully man. He has to be truly God and truly man because both were required for him to accomplish what he had to accomplish. Without the divine nature he could not save us without the human nature he could not die for us. Now again at the end of the day Jesus is truly God truly man that's simple that's all you need to know but I want to push you to understand this right now. Where is he? He is somewhere because he is a man but he's also everywhere because he is God. He has both natures. It's one person two natures. Let me ask you this question. Can Jesus be tempted? The Bible says God cannot be tempted. James 1, God cannot be tempted, and yet the Bible tells us Jesus was tempted because he's a man. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. But Jesus got tired and napped. I want you to consider this, even while he was in his mother's womb, and his body was dependent upon his mother's body for for sustenance, for life, he was still even then upholding all things by the word of his power. He was even then in his divine nature upholding his own mother as she was sustaining him physically in his human nature. And it's not like he was... Two different people caught in one body. He is one person perfectly with both natures. As a baby, he couldn't talk. He couldn't even feed himself. He was, humanly speaking, helpless. He had to learn to walk and talk, but at the same time, he was still unchanging, sovereign, almighty God of the universe. He wasn't any less God because he was human. He wasn't any less human because he was divine. He was perfectly both. That's why Colossians 2.9 reminds us that in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3 says, in him, uh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature is all in him. He cannot be tempted. And yet Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in all things. Let me up the ante a little bit. How do you apply this to his death? Can God die? Can God die? No way. No no way can the God of life die. But Jesus is God. And Jesus died. Jesus as a person died. Jesus is God, and as the God-man, as God in human flesh, Jesus died. Now, God cannot die, but Jesus died. His divine nature cannot die. His divine nature is not, does not become weak in death. It, it, his divine nature doesn't temporarily stop in death. He didn't stop sustaining the universe by the word of his power for three days while he was in the tomb. But he died. Do you see the mystery here? Do you see the... the the, the walls we come up against in terms of our human understanding, we we often sing these words. I don't know if you've ever thought about them. In that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which we will be singing uh, during communion, there's this line that, that just makes me stop and wonder every time. There's a line that says, Slain by death, the God of life. Do you realize how amazing and miraculous that is? That he, the God of life, could somehow be slain by death. If Jesus is not man, he could not die. But if Jesus is not God, his death could not save us. Jesus had to be God. Jesus had to be man in order to save us. If he did not become truly man, he could not truly save us and die in our place. If he was not truly God, then his death would not have been sufficient to pay for the sin of the world. But because he is the Word made flesh, God incarnate, he is able to do what would otherwise be impossible. Because he is a man, he dies in our place. And because he is God, he can take the infinite wrath that we deserve. You know, this idea of him being one person in two natures is something that, people wrestle with, it. that Christians through the ages have struggled with. And there have been all manner and all kinds of heresies that have come about to try to explain this better. One of the interesting things about church history is that oftentimes, oftentimes, the, the wonder and mystery of God's revelation pushes people to say, I want to make it make sense. I can't I can't deal with one person, two natures. I can't deal with Jesus, truly God, truly man. So people come up with different ideas. Maybe his humanity was just kind of pretend. That's a a heresy. Maybe he wasn't truly fully God. Maybe he set aside some of those attributes when he died. Nope. Oftentimes, people trying to tame God, make God, make make Jesus more understandable, more palatable, more, more rational, we end up in heresy. Instead, we have to stop and wonder and say, God, you have done an amazing work. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and it could be no other way. I, I love how in, in 451 AD, there was the Council of Chalcedon. I know some of you are thinking, this is a lot of church history. It's fascinating stuff. And the Council of Chalcedon They were discussing the deity of Christ and the the, the dual nature of Christ in one person. And they said that Jesus has the divine nature and the human nature without change, without confusion, without division, and without separation. It wasn't like they mixed the two and he was this mixture of God and man. No, there was no confusion. Fully God, fully man. There was no change in either one. There's no change in the divine nature. There's no confusion, no mixture, but there's also no separation. He is completely one person. So how does this all work? It's a miracle of miracles. It's a miracle of miracles. Uh, That's why one theologian, Wayne Grudem, put it this way. Wayne Grudem said this, By virtue of union with Jesus' human nature... His divine nature somehow tasted something of what it was like to go through death. The person of Christ experienced death. Moreover, it seems difficult to understand how Jesus' human nature alone could have borne the wrath of God against the sins of millions of people. It seems that Jesus' divine nature had somehow to participate in the bearing of wrath against sin that was due to us, though Scripture nowhere explicitly affirms this. Even though Jesus' divine nature did not actually die, Jesus went through the experience of death as a whole person, as both human and divine natures somehow shared in that experience. Beyond that, Scripture does not enable us to say more. Do you see this sense of wonder and amazement? You see, it's not at all surprising that Jesus, the God-man, would rise from the dead. He is God after all. What's shocking in the first place is that the incarnate author of life would die in the first place. And, and this is why J.I. Packard would say the, the, the really staggering and supreme mystery is not in the resurrection or in Good Friday, but in Christmas, that God would become a man in this way. If Jesus is man, it's not surprising he would die. If he is God, it's not surprising he would rise. What's difficult to understand is that he can truly be both, but praise be to God that he is. So there there is a profound mystery here, and we've only scratched the surface this morning. That's what the incarnation is. That's that's why the incarnation is mysterious. But, But now this third point, to bring it home. What difference does the incarnation make in my life? What difference does the incarnation make in your life? Well, first of all, if we understand the incarnation, we we gain a a humble confidence in prayer. I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews near the end of your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to look at verses 14 to 16. It says there, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because of the incarnation, because he didn't just pretend to be a man, but because Jesus became a man, because the son of God became a man and lived through this life in a fallen world, experiencing temptation, temptation even beyond what we could ever bear. He experienced it to the max and he therefore can sympathize with us. Have you ever talked to someone who you thought was just so far above and beyond you that you were just intimidated to even express your struggles, express your doubts, express your fears, because you thought this person cannot relate? Maybe this morning you feel that way about God. Maybe this morning you feel that way about Jesus. I can't go to Jesus. He's perfect. He doesn't understand what it's like. Friend, because of the incarnation, He does. He understands. He understands your weakness. He understands your temptation. He understands the hurt and the pain you've been through. The betrayals, the loss, the questions. He understands that. He has walked through it, and therefore, that's why verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. So we can go to him, not with fear and trepidation, but we can go with boldness. We can go with confidence because he understands. He is our sympathetic high priest. He is Emmanuel, God with us. How else does the incarnation affect our lives, the incarnation sets forward for us an example of humility. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Go to the left a few books of Philippians chapter 2 and you see this wonderful passage talking about really the incarnation all the way to the cross. Philippians 2 verses 4 to 8. Let each of you Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Oh, sorry. Let me start in verse 3, rather. Sorry. Pick it up in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is this mind that Christ had? Just as a note here, that, that word form, in English, sometimes when we hear the word form, we think just outward appearance, but not the inward reality. Actually, in the Greek, it, it, is, it is exactly the inward reality, it is the true essence and nature of a thing. And so you notice here it says, though he existed in the form of God, he took the form of a servant. It, it, to the same degree that he was God, to the same degree he became a servant, He humbled himself by being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself further to the point of death, even death on a cross. It wasn't a comfortable death. It wasn't a painless death. It wasn't a shameless death. It it was a shameful death. It was a painful death. It was one where he would bear reproach for sin. He was humbled. The God of heaven, the God who would enjoy the worship of angels above, Was willing to become a man. That already would have been a step that we could never fathom. From the infinite heights down to earth, that's a step we could hardly fathom ourselves. But even for him to come in the incarnation and become a man and just simply to rule in luxury and joy and ease for all of his existence would have been already a step of humility. But instead, he went not just down to the form of man, but the form of a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, if he can go from so high to so low, there is no point that is too low for us. It is hard to look down on anybody else if you're kneeling at the foot of the cross. As Christians, as, as those who have trusted in the crucified Savior, we ought to be, of all people, the most humble because we follow a Savior who is humble. One last verse, one last verse. The incarnation also serves as a motivation to be gracious and generous. Gracious and generous. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8 9. In this section, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about about giving. And as Paul often does, he doesn't just give commands with no explanation. He gives a theological reason, he gives a, a, a doctrinal reason for his commands. And here in 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says these words For you know the grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I I love even the word choice there in verse 9. It doesn't say, for you know the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not merely an example for you to follow. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace that you yourself have experienced. It's not just an example to follow. It's a grace to be received. You yourselves know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The one who is infinitely rich became poor for you and for me. And that happened in and through the incarnation Began at the incarnation and ultimately was finished at the cross. We can, perhaps, you can wrap your mind around someone who is rich and powerful today, having some humble beginnings, right? You, you hear those rags to riches kind of stories. Someone who had nothing and started some company in their garage and becomes this 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 trillionaire or whatever it is. You you, you hear these stories, but what's completely unthinkable to us is for someone to, someone to do the opposite, to to go from having absolutely everything to willingly, voluntarily, to joyfully give it all up. We're, we're familiar with rags-to-riches stories, but we have no category for a riches-to-rags kind of story. Where one does so voluntarily for the sake of someone else, but that's what Jesus did for our sakes. I, if I could put it this way, Jesus, the one who is infinitely rich, the one who, is, who, who has far more riches than, than we could ever fathom, Jesus, the divinely infinitely rich one, bankrupted himself for you and me. For, for those of us, for all of us who are poor and needy, he bankrupted himself for our sakes, that we by his poverty might become rich in him. Spiritually rich, having forgiveness, having the spiritual blessings of Christ. You know, it, it just it strikes me sometimes to think about the, the way that, that Christ came into the world where there was just no room for them. He had to be born and laid in a manger. And when I think about that compared to labor and delivery rooms today, it's just amazing. It's, it's amazing. And I can't even think, I can't even imagine if, if you were royalty, what kind of treatment would you get? What, what kind of, oh, you'd have all the, all the niceties, all the luxuries, the best doctors in the world. Everything's clean. Everything's sterile. Because you're the king. You're the queen. You have it all. The God of the universe chose to come into the world as a baby, chose to come through a family of no means, chose to come in a situation where he would be laid in a manger in a feeding trough. That wasn't a miscalculation. It's not like God made a mistake. Oh, I booked it on the wrong day. Christmas was supposed to be a week later. Ah, missed it. God chose. He lined everything up for that to be the way. What message does that send? I mean, just imagine if the Bible was different. If Jesus came and had all the luxury, all the, all the praise, all the fanfare, this would feel like a very different religion. But instead, we have a Savior who came down to earth, down to a feeding trough, down to a cross. Praise God. Praise God. If Jesus, who had everything, gave up everything for the sake of sinners, how much more ought we to show grace to one another, grace to those in need, even when it costs us? But you see, Jesus didn't come just to sympathize with us. He didn't come just to teach us humility. He didn't come just to teach us generosity because ultimately the birth of Christ cannot be separated from the death of Christ. The incarnation cannot be separated from the crucifixion or the resurrection. Any understanding of the birth of Christ that misses the cross misses the final and the ultimate purpose of why Christ came to the earth in the first place. Why not you just listen to these words from... My former pastor, John MacArthur, he wrote these words about Christmas. Jesus came to earth to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to reveal God's love. He came to bring peace. He came to heal the sick. He came to minister to the needy. But all those reasons are incidental to his ultimate purpose. He could have done them all without being born as a human. He could have simply appeared like the angel of the Lord often did in the Old Testament and accomplished everything in the above list without literally becoming a man. But he had one more reason to come. He came to die. Here's a side of the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those little soft hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, soft and warm, wrapped in swaddling cloths, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. We needed more than a a messenger. We needed more than a prophet. We needed more than an angel. We needed God in human flesh. We needed a man, but someone more than a man to come and die for us. And that's who we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, what, what is the incarnation? It is the great miracle of miracles where God would become man. The Word became flesh. What's so mysterious? that the God of life would be slain by death. And why does this matter for us? Because we need to follow his example, but more than that, we need to trust in his death, trust in his finished work, that our sins which deserve his wrath must be paid for by someone, either by him on the cross or by us in hell. And he offers that forgiveness. He offers that salvation to all who would believe and repent of their sins. And what a glorious gift that is. Friend, if you're here and you don't know what all of that means and you want to know more about that gift, please, 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 please talk to me, talk to someone here before you go home. We we don't want you to walk away without receiving this gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. We thank you that he is the one who has done the unthinkable. He became a man that he might die as a man in our place. God, we thank you. We pray that you would help us to worship, to worship you with full hearts, to worship you with minds that are filled with truth, that you would humble us in those areas where we struggle to even grasp and comprehend. Lord, help us to to love you with our whole hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.